Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. For those of you who haven't met me yet, my name is Brooke and I've been a part of Hills Baptist Orgate for about 17 years now. So most of you know me pretty well. But for those who don't, a few fun facts about me are that I've spent the last nine years working as a director of an out-of-school hours care. I spent part of my childhood living in Africa, in Tanzania and Malawi. And this is the very first time I've ever preached. And I'm (laughs) really excited to share with you today. Um, If you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you will know that we are working our way through a sermon called, series called How to Church, looking at 1 Corinthians and learning from the issues that the Corinthians were dealing with about how we do church. Over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at 1 Corinthians 11 and Mike Glamey shared with us about women in the church and we looked at how we do communion with Nick last week. Chapter 12 goes on to talk about spiritual gifts, but we are going to skip ahead and leave that passage for Nick to share with us next week. This week we are going to look at a passage that will be very familiar to most of you and one that almost anyone who has ever attended a wedding will have heard at least once. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 13. I wanted to mention chapter 12 before we start as it brings some important context to to the passage that we are about to read. And so for that reason we will start our reading from 1 Corinthians 12, 27 rather than from 1 Corinthians 13, 1. So let's read our passage. Now, oh, I'm reading from the NIV. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. And in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret, but eagerly desire the greater gifts? And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, And if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am, sorry, that's my spot, nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. 
Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love. And the greatest of these is love. We know that 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians to address some issues that they were facing. So what problem was Paul addressing in this passage? It seems that the Corinthian church was getting their priorities wrong and misusing their spiritual gifts. There were people who had certain spiritual gifts, such as prophecy or tongues, the more showy gifts, I guess, that were acting as if they were more important than those who had so-called lesser gifts, like administration or encouragement. Just like the Corinthians, we can often assume the greatest gifts are the more supernatural or impressive gifts. And Paul spends chapters 12 and 13 setting them and us straight and telling us what the most excellent way is, or in other words, what the greatest gift is. If we look at the first three verses of chapter 13, Paul tells us that without love, the other spiritual gifts are worthless. He specifically mentions three gifts, speaking in tongues, prophecy and faith. And says, even if I excel in those gifts, if I don't have love, I am nothing. And all my words are only empty noise. In the final sentence of this paragraph, he emphasises his point. Even if I do all the right actions but don't have love, those actions are worthless. So love is what gives value to the spiritual gifts. If we then skip forward to verses 8 to 13... We'll come back to the middle part later. Paul says that the other gifts will pass away. Why? Because they are not necessary in heaven or the new heavens and the new earth. This is what he's alluding to with the talk about now we see a poor reflection as in a mirror and then we shall see face to face. This is Paul saying that when we get to heaven, we will no longer need spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are God's way of revealing himself to us. And communicating with us here. They show us a reflection of him like a mirror. But when we get to heaven, we will see him face to face. Our form of knowing him and communicating with him will change. Again, with the contrast between a child and an adult, Paul is hinting at the same thing. Spiritual gifts are, in a sense, childish thoughts. And there is nothing wrong with that. A child should have childish thoughts. But when we become an adult, meaning when we reach heaven, we will no longer think that way. We will move from the childish communication system of spiritual gifts to the grown-up system of communication face-to-face with God. So I think that the first point that we can take away from this passage is that when it comes to measuring Christian maturity, perhaps the most mature Christian is not the one with many gifts or the one with all the impressive gifts, but the one who loves well. In the final verse, he reinforces this point when he says, but these three remain, faith, hope and love, and the greatest of these is love. Why do these three remain while the others pass away? Because while the gifts are a temporary gift to us to give us access to God, faith, hope and love are eternal. Faith and hope remain because they are fulfilled. Hebrews 11.1 tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. 
When we arrive in eternity, we will no longer need faith to believe that God exists. We will see him with our own eyes and all our hopes will be fulfilled. But faith and hope do not cease to exist because if they were to cease to exist, then we would be in doubt and despair. There's certainly no doubt and despair in heaven, in God's presence. So they remain, but in a different manner. We spend our lives here waiting in hope and faith is what gives that hope substance. And in eternity, we will see that hope fulfilled and that faith rewarded and proved true. Love remains because God is love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 tells us, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Love is an element of God's nature and therefore can never pass away. This is also why it's the greatest of these, as Paul put it at the end of the passage. If God himself is love, how could anything else be the most important thing? We show what God is like when we love, like a reflection in a mirror. And in John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So to come back to the original question of how do we do church, the most important answer is that we love. Our entire purpose as a church is to love. So what does that mean? What is love? What does it look like to love? I think a good starting place is to look at what love is not. Often our thinking can be shaped by our culture without us even realising it. For example, I mentioned at the start of the sermon that I spent part of my childhood in Africa. And I actually chose that particular fact to mention for a very specific reason. Because it gives a great example of how this works. So, if you know me well, you might know that I'm rather bad at being on time. (laughs) And our culture puts a high priority on being punctual and I really struggle with it. And one day, it finally dawned on me why. It's because I tend to put a priority on the place where I am over wherever I'm going next. For example, I don't like to leave someone mid-conversation. And I'll give you one guess where that attitude is a cultural norm. Yep, Tanzania, the African country I spent some of my childhood in. While I never consciously learned that attitude or even realised that I had, I'd simply absorbed it from being a part of that culture. So the question is, what ideas have we subconsciously absorbed about what love is from our culture? I think that one big one is that love is a feeling. Another is that loving someone means accepting that everything about them is good and never disagreeing with them. This is definitely not a biblical definition of love. For one, we know that apart from Jesus, none of us have anything about us that is good. So, we know that love is not agreeing with everyone about something. It's not a feeling. So then what is it? Another thing that subconsciously shapes our thinking about something is language. In English, we use the word love to describe many different things. We can say, I love chocolate, I love my mum or dad, I love my dog, I love football or netball or whatever sport, or I love my friends. But when we say, I love chocolate or I love my cat, it's not the same kind of love as when we say, I love my mum or I love my friends, is it? 
Saying I love chocolate is simply expressing a preference. The others are love, but they are all different kinds of love. We just have one universal word for it. English doesn't differentiate between the types, but some other languages do, including the Greek that the New Testament is written in. In that Greek, they have four different words for love. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis outlines them for us. By the way, I highly recommend that book if you're interested in looking more into the subject of love. Um, the four words for love in Greek are storga, which is affection or familial love, the kind of love we have for our family or our pets, the things that we love because they're familiar because we belong with them or they belong with us. Phileo is the second type, that's friendship, which is described as the kind of love we we have for those we choose to spend time with because we find common ground with them. And then there's eros, which is romantic love, or the kind we refer to when we say we are in love. And then the fourth kind is agape, which is gift love or sacrificial love. It's the kind of love that God is or has. And some, we often hear this referred to as unconditional love, which isn't wrong, but most commentators say that a puts others first love is a more accurate translation because the emphasis in the Greek meaning is on the putting others before yourself rather than on the conditions it does or doesn't have. Um, the word in our passage, used in our passage is, of course, agape. So we're not talking about the love we have for food or sport and we're not talking about romantic love despite the popularity of this passage in wedding ceremonies. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with using it in a wedding ceremony. It's definitely appropriate, but romantic love is not the focus of this passage. Agape, or gift love, the kind of love that God is, is the focus. And the context is talking about agape within a church or community. Sacrificial love would be expected in a marriage, but would you be as equally willing to put the needs of the person sitting three rows over that you might not even know very well before your own? Another interesting thing that we can learn from the language used in this passage is that there is a major difference between the English version that we read and the original Greek. In English, we read a list of adjectives. In other words, a list of words describing what love is like. But in Greek, it's not a list of describing words, but a list of verbs, of action words. It's a list of things that love does rather than a list of things love is. For example, we've got this example up on the slide. It's not very grammatically correct, but <laughs> we can't make it correct in English really because we don't have that way of saying it. But in English we say love is kind. And in the Greek it says love kinds, as if love is the one doing the action. Almost as though it were describing not an abstract concept, but a person. Because of the English translation, we usually read this passage as a list of desirable attributes, a kind of checklist of standards to try and live up to. But what if, instead of looking at it as a checklist of what we need to be, what if we rather looked at it as a description of a person to emulate? Earlier, we looked at the passage where John tells us that God is love. And the same word is used there as in our First Corinthians passage. Agape. So if God is agape, then this description of love can equally be read as God is or Jesus is. 
So let's read that description again of love again with that in mind. And I'm going to read it with Jesus in place of the love. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He is not rude. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I don't know about you, but I tend to be a little bit of a perfectionist. And when I look at, that pas- at this passage as a list of attributes that I need to live up to, it tends to put a weight on me because I know that I'm incapable of it. When I flip it and look at it as a description of Jesus, of someone to emulate, it takes the pressure away. It highlights the fact that I will not get this right. This is not something that I can get right. Jesus was the only perfect human to ever exist and will be the only perfect human to ever exist. We cannot ever match that. So that takes the pressure to meet the standard away. But does that mean we throw our hands up and say, I can't do it, so why even try? Of course not. We should aspire to be as much like him as we can, even knowing that we will fall short. He tells us to be like him, knowing that we cannot succeed, but that just trying will be enough to have a positive impact on both ourselves and others. And it's important to remember that love is a spiritual gift. And just like the other gifts, like prophecy, if we allow him to, the Holy Spirit will love others through us far beyond our own ability to do so. This is exactly what Paul was talking about when he talked about now being partial and then we will see him full. We emulate as well as we can now and that is what our spiritual gifts are for. But we can't get this right here. But we will in heaven one day. In the meantime... God simply asks us to try and forgives us when we fail. Which brings me back to our list. We now have a description of love, but what exactly is that description telling us? Overall, it is clear that in agreement with the Greek definition of agape, love is about putting others first. And we could break that down in detail. I could preach an entire sermon on each one of these attributes, but we don't have time for that. So to finish up, I've chosen just one to focus on. Forgiveness. In verse 5, we see that love keeps no record of wrongs. Or in other words, God keeps no record of wrongs. Psalm 103, 8-12 tells us, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And in Hebrews 8.12, God says, For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. These verses tell us that God has removed our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west. That's an infinite distance. They could not possibly be removed any further. And that he remembers our sins no more. Stop and think about that for a second. God does not forget. He by nature is not capable of forgetting. But he actively chooses not to remember. When you repent and ask for forgiveness, God deliberately erases his ability to see the thing you did wrong. He, in essence, chooses 
to wipe it from existence as if, to his knowledge, it never happened. One day, quite a few years ago, I was praying and somewhat fittingly, actually, I honestly can't even remember anymore what I was feeling guilty about. But I remember that I was feeling guilty about something that I'd already asked for forgiveness for. But I was finding it hard to let go of it, of feeling guilty about it. And I was asking for forgiveness for it again. And God answered me in what I'm not sure was actually an audible voice, but it was definitely a voice that I distinctly heard. And he said, what for? I don't know what you're talking about. And at that moment, it hit me. To him, it was as if the thing that I was still hung up on had never happened. Because he'd already wiped it from his memory. So from his perspective, I hadn't done anything wrong to ask forgiveness for. From God's perspective, my slate was clean. Now, I want to be clear. Just because God wipes it from his memory doesn't mean we won't still have to live with the consequences. We are free of the condemnation, but we still have to deal with the consequences. Like maybe broken relationships or maybe legal consequences if we broke the law. But as far as God is concerned, we have a clean slate. Would we be quicker to forgive ourselves and let go of our guilt and shame if we really embraced that truth? And I'm going to go a step further and say, what if we also took the approach of choosing not to remember the wrongs others committed against us? Of course, this is not an easy thing to do. But if God has forgiven us, can we do any less for others? One thing I want to make really clear is that forgiveness does not mean saying that it was okay. This is another thing that we've subconsciously learned from our culture. From a very young age, we have it constantly reinforced to us that if we forgive, we are saying that what they did was okay. I mean, think about it. I'm looking for an answer here. What are we taught as kids is the correct response when someone says, I'm sorry? Yep, that's okay. That is not the correct answer. It was not okay. The correct answer should be, I forgive you. Saying I forgive you does not mean that we are saying what they did was okay. Nor does it mean remaining in abusive situations. In fact, for something to need forgiving, it means that the action must have been unacceptable or inexcusable in the first place. It is in fact saying that it was not okay, but I am choosing not to hold on to that. I will not keep a record of it. I will hand it over to God to deal with. It is not my job to judge, but his. And God asks us to do this for our own benefit. If we hold on to our resentment, this only has a neg negative impact on us. As theologian Lewis B. Smead said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and then discover that that prisoner was you. And I'm sure I can already hear a but forming in some of your minds, but surely there are some things that are too horrible to forgive. Surely. So I thought it might be a good idea to let someone who has actually had to forgive someone that most people would find unforgivable speak into this space. Corrie Ten Boom lived in Holland during the Nazi occupation in World War II. She and her father and sister hid Jews in their home. Eventually they were caught and taken to Ravensbrück concentration camp. 
And her father and sister both died there. Corrie survived and travelled the world speaking about her experiences. At one of her speaking events, she met a man who she recognised as one of the guards from Ravensbrück. And I'll let her tell you the rest of the story in this video. It was some time ago that I was in Berlin. And there came a man to me and said, Ah, Mr. Bohm, I am glad to see you. Don't you know me? And suddenly I saw that man. That was one of the most cruel aufseers in concentration camp. And that man said, I have, I'm now a Christian. I have found the Lord Jesus. I read my Bible and I know that there is forgiveness for all the sins of the whole world. Also for my sins. I have forgiveness for the cruelties I have done. But then I have asked God grace for an opportunity that I could ask one of my very victims forgiveness. And Fräulein Zambom, will you forgive me? And I could not. I remembered the suffering of my dying sister through him. But when I saw, when I experienced that I could not forgive, Suddenly I knew, I myself have no forgiveness, but I was not able, I could not, I could only hate him. And then I took one of these beautiful texts, one of these boundless resources, Romans 5.5, 5, and thank you, Father, that your love is stronger than my hatred and unforgiveness. That same moment, I was free. And I could say, brother, give me your hand. And I shook hands with him. And it was as if I felt God's love stream through my arms. You never touch so the ocean of God's love as that you forgive your enemies. Can you forgive? No. I can't either, but he can. She couldn't forgive, but he could. We can't forgive, but he can. This is how we do church. We love one another. We put others first. We forgive. And when we can't, he can. Let's close with a prayer. Father God, I just thank you um, for the love that you have for us and the love that you give us to bless others with. And I pray that, yeah, as we go out this week as a community, we will dwell in that truth of your love and forgiveness for us and that we will reflect that love and forgiveness onto the other people around us. And I pray you will bless us as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.